Welcome to the Making a Runner podcast. I'm your host, Nick, a running specialist by kineticist and coach. And I'm a co-host, Davey, aka Davey on the Run. Through our shared knowledge and experience, we unpack the fascinating topic of running. We speak to coaches, athletes, subject matter experts, and everyday enthusiasts to help you improve your running. And ensure that you enjoy every step of the way, wherever the road or trail may take you. This is how runners are made. It's how runners are made, baby. Oh yeah. You know, it's called like sort of the principle of diminishing returns. The better you get at something and almost anything in life, the harder it is to get better. Your easier will get faster as you get fitter. One thing that really sticks with me is thinking of that nighttime routine or sleep yeah. as the start of your next day rather yeah. than the end of your current day. I mean, you can get really in-depth yeah, into, right. into sort of the strategies, but basically you just want to think of your general goals. When you line up at the start of a training session, you want to have enough fuel in your body. And when we talk about fuel, we normally talk about carbohydrates and enough fluid in your body to perform well enough in the session. You just want to be well hydrated and well fueled. So you want to eat enough leading into the session, but not too much that you feel uncomfortable. After your session, what you want to do is you've now depleted some of that fuel because you've gone and exercised. You want to refuel, you want to restock. Do you think that carbon fiber shoes can make a difference in your running speed? You should try Cool Ideas Fiber Internet Solutions for your home or business. They're fast, effective, and take the podium for the best customer service in the game. Nicola! Davey! How are you? I'm not sick, I can tell you that. I'm sick. You're sick. I'm on Flucin, I'm on some other drug. I'm not it's the feeling the story well. of Davey's life, eh? And you don't even have a race tomorrow, can you believe it? Yeah, no, I'm actually sick You're this time. You're actually there's, sick there, this there's, time. There's yellow stuff coming out my nose. Oof, so what's that going to do for the running this week? I don't know. We start again on Tuesday, <laughs> so I'm very excited. I'm like amping myself up for that. I will miraculously recover, without a doubt, and I will I will thrive under the pressure. But tell I, me, tell me, uh, how how has your rest been? Have you have you enjoyed your recovery post comrades? Such a good question, hey. Because how has my rest actually been? My my recovery has been interesting. I spent thirteen days. Uh, doing absolutely deadly squat, and then on the on the 14th day, I decided to go for a five k run. I uh, put my carbon fiber shoes on, and like a gazelle, I was <laughs> out the door at 420 a kilometer. Hey, just like it, just <laughs> hey. like comrades never happen. And then on the fourth k, I was like, "How the bloody hell am I ever going to do a long run ever again?" So five k's, that was it. And then that wasn't enough. So on the weekend, I went for a 10K with my one friend and I did a 38-minute 10K. And then that was essentially the final nail in the coffin because that kind of derailed me and every single other injury that I had pre-comrades resurfaced. Uh, you're already overdoing it and we haven't even started training. I know. Overdoing so it. Mine has been uh, stupid to say the least, but... I've enjoyed it. Um, it's been interesting on my end to see how how I feel like I've lost a little bit of fitness. I know I haven't so lost much that much, but it's more just, you know, I've been lazy, haven't run. I, I ran for the first time last week. It was, I think, 18 days of no running, which is crazy, you think. It felt awful, 30 minutes. I came home, my heart rate just was not recovering. Uh, I was like, I was mostly depressed thereafter. Did you wear carbon fiber shoes? No, I didn't. I, I went with normal shoes. My feet felt awful. My toes were still uncomfortable <laughs> from comrades. And then uh, the next next run I went on was with some carbon fibers, but some new on cloud booms. 
And uh, yeah, I felt no difference. <laughs> that did not help me at all. <laughs> I was I was feeling broken again. So I'm hoping to get back into it, mostly because I also have to pace a hundred miler next weekend. So I have I have no choice. That wasn't a smart yeah. uh, choice but, on your side. But I mean, now now that we're going back into it, we got some new goals and aspirations. What what are your goals coming up, Davey? Sure, my goals. Uh, I'm getting married in less than a month. So running that's, goals, running goals. That's well, I'm just I'm just <laughs> splitting it up because I can't plan anything until that. So <laughs> definitely a 10k, like you say, fast um, 10k. Very 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 fast 10k. And then are you doing comrades again? Hundred percent. Oh, comrades is actually now uh, th- well. Yeah, the, the date has been confirmed, 11th of June, and Catherine's yeah. birthday is 10th of June, so Oof. I have a lot of work to do birthday there. Birthday present. Birthday present, Silver. yes, silver medal. Yeah, that's actually a good <laughs> birthday present. Um, definitely two oceans. I've decided yeah. that I really, really, really want to get a silver medal <laughs> some way, <laughs> so I'm going to try to do a silver medal uh, to oceans with you because I know you're very keen to yeah. absolutely yeah. destroy that race. Um, and then I really also want to try and do a, um, a 15 minute 5k, which is very ambitious, but I do, obviously I, I like shorter distance. I know, I know I can, I can train nicely for shorter distance. So yeah, 5,000 meters has been something on my list for uh, quite some time. Those are some good goals there, my boy. I'm going to be right there next to you. Don't there you, you worry. Don't you worry. And uh, I'm, I'm quite excited for today's, uh, episode because I think, you know, the, big word going around right now is rest and recovery especially for anyone that's followed our our comrades journey and we're not going to be talking much more about comrades after today and that's pretty much done now it's buried for another year (laughs) but yes we have been resting we haven't been doing much we've been recovering and today we're talking to a good friend of ours and clock he is a sports scientist exercise physiologist knows a whole bunch of stuff a whole, about a whole bunch of things. So he, he's a great guy to get into this topic and debate of, first of all, we're going to be talking about the science of coaching, which, I mean, we, we've heard about the art of coaching in the past, but the science behind different methods of coaching. And then we're also going to be talking about some recovery modalities and we're going to be myth-busting a few uh, things that Davey does uh, <laughs> along the way. So guys, here's Ant. Hope you enjoy the podcast. All the way from the UK. All the way from the UK. Especially flown here by making a runner. <laughs> enjoy guys. We have Ant Clark here all the way from the UK, especially for, for this recording. Night. We decided to fly him over. <laughs> we've, we've just made it so big at the moment that we can fly people from the UK. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, How was your business class flight? Yeah, it was, here. it was fantastic. It was good. Slept like a baby. Uh, the chicken on the plane was great. Uh, chicken, good protein, eh? Yeah, bro. Gin and tonics as well. Okay, so, so let's quickly go there. Chicken, good for recovery. Gin and tonic, not, not so good. Yeah, yeah, no. I think I think you know in mo- everything in moderation. But I, I wouldn't advise uh, I wouldn't advise having a double gin and tonic after a Sunday long run. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Be my th- go-to. So just just a little teaser of what we're going to be talking about today. Obviously, Ant is a sports scientist by nature, a high performance uh, strength and conditioning coach, and also busy studying his PhD uh, in netball. No, 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 no. I believe he's doing it in recovery, recovery. Uh, fatigue, Ma- fatigue. Fat- fatigue and recovery. Yeah, more, more of the fatigue side. And okay. then uh, I have to deal with the recovery as well because, you know. Um, You've got to manage the yeah. recovery to yeah, decrease yeah. that fatigue. Well, to analyze the fatigue, you got to know, like, how do you recover, I guess. For sure. So, and maybe tell us a little bit about you, how you, how you got into sports science and uh, how you've developed since then. Yeah, so um, I think... First, good place to start would be to actually clarify what I do and what a sports scientist is, because I think 
that term gets thrown around a lot. You know, everyone here has a sports science degree, but not many people actually get to meet a working sports scientist who someone actually works and that's their, their job title as a sports scientist. And so basically my whole job is I work with Leeds Rhinos Netball in the UK right now. Um, they're match funding my PhD at Leeds Beckett University and uh, I'm analyzing like fatigue and netball. So what they do is they pay my salary and then I provide them with the sports science service, which is I uh, take all of their training load that they do. So they wear GPS units on their back. We can't tell how far they go, but we can measure all the accelerations they do. And I look at how much they do in a session and then how much they do session on session on session. And then I take in all their wellness data, how they're feeling every day, sleep. how hard they, yeah, they sleep, how hard they thought their sessions were. And I basically monitor that, uh, make some nice pretty graphs and statistics and then uh, feed it to my boss, who's the head of physical performance. And then uh, she feeds it to the coach to be like, you know, we've got these players that are feeling pretty good. They can push really hard today. We've got these players that, uh, you know, we maybe need to check in with them. Their recovery scores are low. They've been doing a lot of work. Can so they train hard today, can't they? So is that what a sports scientist does then? Yeah, essentially you manage training load of, uh, you analyze and manage training loads. So you've got to collect all the data, like the training data for a team, see how much is the team actually doing. And then you've got to help make decisions on like, are they doing too much? Are they doing too little? Are they just getting that like needle just right? And is that, um, is that quite big in most sports teams nowadays? Like, you know, like Premier League soccer teams or even oh, yeah. with like the the um, in-in running team, is it? Yeah, the Nike running team. The Nike running team. Oh, yeah. Like, will they all kind of have sports scientists kind of monitoring their fatigue? 100%, yeah. So they're like almost any sort of pro sports team with a half decent budget nowadays um, tries to invest in some sort of like sports science and load management. And then it'll just be like budget constraints as to what that sort of like looks like. Mm. Um, all your football teams, I know like... Mm in the UK up to sort of like, you know, past championship down to like your second or third division below championship, there are teams there that are paying for sports scientists. Okay. And to, to give you a quick example of a sports scientist related to running, if you if you watched uh, the sub two attempt by yeah, Kipchoge yeah, yeah. in Vienna, mm. he had a whole team of sports scientists. Yeah, he yes, even yes, had yes. one riding on the bike next to him yeah. with a laptop on oh, the bike. Monitoring how monitoring much he, he took in exactly and they were picking up in. his bottles yeah. behind him yes. and then measuring the bottles. Exactly yeah, what he had taken crazy. in and adjusting his nutrition yes. strategy I thought that was ahead of time, which was just insane uh, in terms of that, that you're looking at the, the, the pinnacle of the, the graph, I, was, I would assume. Yeah, so that what you, what you would have been looking at there actually would have been what we call the sports science and medicine team. Like there'll be a whole host of people. So you'll have your dietitian, nutritionist on board there. You'll have an exercise physiologist, which is something that I'm also trained in. That's probably my main speciality. And then you'll have like the sports scientist and then like the head medical doctor and stuff and head physiotherapist, probably those five names. And they might have people working underneath them and they're all working together to like get that performance going. So like exercise physiologist would have looked at Kipchoge before he went there. Um, and race looked at all of his stats, his running economy, how's VO2 max is looking, what's his lactate threshold, like what speed can he sustain before you know he sort of starts mm. coding and going into that red zone and feedback all that info. Then you'll have the sports scientist that will look at the amount of work he's actually doing over a long period of time and how he's building up for it. Like, is he getting the miles in correctly? Is he getting enough miles in? What is his intensity of his miles like? Is he meeting the targets that they want? And then how's he recovering? How's he actually coping with the training load to that? And they'll probably work with the physiologist. Then you'll have like the doctor you'll uh, basically check, you know, how's he feeling, like any injuries, any niggles, mm -hmm. and he'll work mm -hmm. with sort of like the physiotherapist and they all come together on the day and the nutritionist will be tracking everything on the day. Okay, so that, that's one extreme of it. And then yeah. taking it to the other extreme, 
which is amateur running, which is like what, mm. what we're doing, all of that. So what would you say is the best way for any, any runner listening to this podcast? How, do, how would you recommend monitoring fatigue and, and best ways for recovery? So obviously, I mean, we go by, you know, Strava, wearing our yeah. garments, Nick uses training peaks, which like mm. also monitors fatigue and stuff. But what would you say to a, a you know, everyday runner? How, how do you, how, how would they track their fatigue? So yeah, it'll, it, it's, it's going to vary from sort of where you're at in your running journey. And I'd say probably the most basic thing, you know, once you actually now want to, you've gotten good enough, you want to start tracking a, like, you know, your fatigue and how you're feeling is just when you wake up every morning, give yourself a half hour and then write down out of 10, how do you feel? You know, mm. and then just take that a look, look at that. I look very poor on my side. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're already running off half an hour <laughs> every morning. Half an hour. But, uh, but I think Davey touches on an important aspect there, and it's something that I definitely wanted to speak about perhaps a little bit later in the podcast as we get into the nitty gritty of what exactly is recovery and how athletes can get the most out of it. But that, that personal element, I think mm. each and every single individual needs to understand their body enough to know how they're feeling on each 100%. and every single day. But you only know that through experience. Definitely. And if you don't have that experience, then that's when a sports scientist, a coach or something like that can come in very handy. And I think, you know, we've heard about the art of coaching in episode two with Coach Boyens. But what I really want to get into today is the science of coaching because I, I'm a big believer that obviously science drives a lot of what we do as coaches. Yes, the the art element, in inverted commas, I would say, is how you deal with each and every single athlete based on their needs. Mm. But there's there's definitely science that determines what we do as coaches, right? So yeah. going back to exercise physiology, what are we looking to train? Obviously, it's that that aerobic system. But perhaps let let's start off with that. The two different systems that people can train how they go yeah. about training that and then we can build up towards the recovery element. Do you have a question, Davey? Yeah, I just want to put a disclaimer out there that this is a, these are two very scientific people that we've got talking to each other. I'm here as the, the test dummy, the, the um, person that you need to dumb it down to as much as possible. So please, bear that in mind. I'm going to ask a lot of questions and you're going to have to put it in uh, simple terms. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so basically talking training principles for running. So... I think it's uh, it's important to always like understand from the beginning that why do we train? We train to get some kind of adaptation to training. The way you get fitter and physically fitter is that some kind of physical change needs to happen in the, within your body. Um, and now for running, the words that get thrown around a lot that I think that Nick's already mentioned that people sort of get a bit confused by sort of aerobic and anaerobic. The scientific way of, of thinking about that is like aerobic exercise is exercise that, you know, when you're doing it, you can use all the oxygen. It's very easy to produce all the energy you need using oxygen. You don't have to build up any lactic acid. You don't have to get into these energy systems that you don't use oxygen to produce energy to keep it sort of as simply as possible. Air, oxygen. Air, oxygen. Aerobic. Anaerobic without oxygen. <laughs> Anaerobic without oxygen, okay. Yeah, I won't get any more scientific than that. The way I like to explain it to people rather is basically aerobic means something you can very comfortably sustain. If you're working in an aerobic system, it's something that you can probably keep going for a while. And that's going to look different for different people. If you're a runner that's just starting your running journey, you're wanting to run your first 5K, your aerobic zones are probably going to be walking. You know, The second you start jogging, you might be kicking up into what we'd call an anaerobic zone anaerobic is basically from the exercise intensity where you can't keep sustaining that you know you you definitely could never you could maybe sustain it for like 10 to 20 minutes half an hour if you're a really tough really fit person 
pretty hard, but there's no way you're going to sustain that for 40 minutes to an hour in an anaerobic zone, you know, and then real anaerobic, you know, you get levels to this. The harder you go, you know, the less you can sustain it. If you were to go as fast as you can and sprint as far as you can, you know, even within a hundred meters, you're slowing down from your maximum speed. Yeah. So, so that's where that principle of trying to tell people just to, to take it easy at first. Like, you know, that's the most important thing. If you're a new runner, you don't want to, you don't necessarily need to be getting into the, the anaerobic stuff at all at first, no. you know, you just trying to build that base fitness. That's where the easy effort. And I mean, it can be difficult to determine what an effort is based. And I mean, you're looking at pace zones, heart rate zones, the the actual feel zones and i would usually work on an easy scale of one to ten but you know how does how does a new individual someone that's new to the sport dumb it down for themselves you know how do they make sense of all of this that we're saying right now what what is easy what should be easy yeah and is easy determined on the given effort on each and every single day yeah so i think a good way to tell if you're going easily is you know helps have a friend with you when you go and if you can talk to them and have a nice conversation very, very easily. Like you don't, you're not, you're not thinking why are you talking to them? Like, man, I wish this guy would shut up. Um, <laughs> then, then you're in that easy zone. As soon as you start thinking, you know, please like stop asking me questions. You, you, you're starting to probably get too close to that anaerobic zone. And when you literally like now you're breathing heavy, you can't, you can't actually really, you, you, you're speaking in short sentences, you're struggling to reply, then you're hitting your anaerobic zone. So is, there a, is there a heart rate um, or is that different for everybody? Yeah, that's going to be very different for everyone. Um, I mean, even things like your maximum heart rate you can get up to is going to differ completely from individual to individual. So many things go into that, like your age. But I mean, even like, you know, Nick and I are similar age, you know, I might have a heart max heart rate of 200 he might have one of 180 you know there's there's so many things that change and also uh, like the the actual devices that we measure heart rate through yeah. unless you're wearing a heart rate chest strap and certain chest straps are better than others it's not a given that it's going to be 100 percent accurate as well so yeah. it wouldn't be a go-to metric to start off with no definitely not to start once you've, you've progressed enough and if you sort of have the funds and, and the connections the way to do that is to actually sort of like test it out preferably with someone that's qualified like a like a physiologist or a really experienced running coach that's that's worked with physiologists and knows at least how to do a basic field test version either that or your gold standard is you go into a laboratory and you run a vo2 max test with your lactate threshold and that's going to tell you your zones and they'll be able to tell you that like if you do that and they do it really nicely it's a good lab they'll be able to be like davy your speed that you can sustain for an hour is 18 kilometers an hour okay. somewhere around there which would be pretty but good it's it's an interesting topic because i get asked a lot especially with new clients or uh, people that are wanting to get into running at first you know their heart rate does not stay down they're either no. walking and they're sitting at the 100 120 mark and and you know if you look at their uh, physiology you'd say that's their aerobic zone or if they try run all of a sudden they're getting into the 160s 170s 190s and the, the common question is is it more important to make sure that I stay in the aerobic zone or is it more important that I try and run for as much time as I can? Mm, mm. What, would, what would be your advice in that case? Well, you know, the, the evidence from a scientific base is always building and it it's, seems to be building in one direction and that's keep it slow and easy for most of your training. So everyone's heard the 80-20 rule with eating. Um, they've also potentially heard it for running if, they, if they're runners. Uh, where you go 80%, you know, zone two, max zone three training, but preferably zone two, zone one to two, depends how, depends how you sort of like define your zones. And 20% is the hard stuff. And even 20% of the hard stuff can be quite a bit. There's yeah. a lot of runners that go, it's only 10% that they're actually sort of working in that hard anaerobic zone. The rest of the time, you want to be just trying to get as much mileage as possible over time. 
in your zone sort of one to two kind of area so and it's more important to keep it easy more important to keep it easy and you will you will get fitter for sure and eventually you know your easy will become relative you'll be able to run a little bit more yeah and your heart rate will start to stay lower yeah gets faster and fa- your easier will get faster as you get fitter basically but but in, th- in th- your th- opinion Yes. Well, it's the scientific opinion. What, your opinion. What's your opinion? Does it not get Scandinavian Well, that's what I'm going to. I want to I yeah. go to, to the difference. So what we're talking about right now is a, a polarized uh, training method. You know, it's a, it's a method where you're spending most of your time in the easy zone, hardly any time in those middle zones, and a, a, a small chunk of that time in the peak zone. Which is how we've been training. Which is what, which uh, is what uh, we did for my Cape Town Marathon, it is. which was my PB. And it is. I mean, that was the one thing where, where we did that and I was like, okay, this actually makes sense because even when we were training for Cape Town, I think we did, I did one run at one and a half hours at, at race pace. Everybody had always kind of told me, go, you know, two hours, two and a half hours, sort of like at faster pace. But, but we did very minimal fast running. Yeah. Um, and it, I had my doubts, but it worked. And then we did that for comrades as well, which yeah. went fantastically. Well, and and you know that's the mo- most coaches subscribe to that methodology. There are some people that believe in pyramidal as well, and I mean pyramidal is essentially it's similar to polarized, but you're just spending a little bit more time in those middle zones. You're still spending most of your time in the easy zones, a little bit less time in the middle zones, and even less time at the top zones. But what Davey's talking about in terms of the Scandinavian, it's it's Davey's favorite, is it not? It's I go, just, I just go at hard tempo it. all the time. It's and just yeah. <laughs> So I would love to do it. So there, there are there are certain elite coaches that that's a that's that's the way they like to train. So the whole principle behind that is, you know, they know how fast they need their athletes to run the marathon to place, like get a medal, come top ten, whatever the goal is. They know you need to run it in like two fifty five a k or two fifty one a k for forty two point two k's. And so their whole principle of training is just trying to get that that athlete to be able to sustain that for as long as possible. Basically, it just makes so much sense to me though because. If you know that your goal is X, say it's, say it's 330 a kilometer, mm. then surely you should be spending as much time running that pace and get, getting comfortable with that pace. And, right. and say, you're, say you're doing 42Ks, then surely you need to do a two, a two hours, three, three hours you know, at that pace to get comfortable with the pace. I just don't see why, like Nick and I do a lot of track work and you do that pace for... 10 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. And I'm like, okay, but now come race day, my body's going to be like, what the F um, <laughs> is this, you know? So Yeah, so, so I mean, it's, it's a very good question. And I uh, know it's a good question. <laughs> I think it's a double-edged sword. No, because no. Exactly if you can handle it. I've got, I've got a good answer. It, yeah, well, that's, that's the main thing. So if you can take it. So that Scandinavian style of training, I'd say, is reserved for a very special kind of elite athletes. 100%. I'm not saying everybody should um, do it. So the, the biggest problem is, is so we know that, that overall what you need to do to sort of increase your, your, your VO2 max and your capability to run at speed for long periods of time is you need to build as much running volume. You need to cover as many miles as you possibly can in the week. So if we're talking about like really good runners, I mean, you guys were covering like 160 kilometers roughly a week, you know, in your peak comrades training, you know, elite marathon runners, there's, you know, there's a guy, he's a sort of local athlete that I know, and he's covering like 120 to 150 miles in a week. But when he goes to which run- Which is how many Ks? Just like 200, just over 200 Ks a week. And um, when he goes- and But he's actually, elite level. He's, like, he's an elite yeah. level runner. So when yeah. he goes and when, when he goes to run a marathon, like, and try and run, and he's run like a two hour seven marathon, 
Um, full semen. Yeah, full sesamin, yeah. Sesamin, sorry. Yeah. So um so full, yeah. So if he so he, he wants to go and do that, but like, you know, he's running when he's running his race pace, it's 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 still technically actually not even his, his anaerobic zone because you can't sustain anaerobic for two hours and seven minutes, right? So it's still it's still below that threshold. But it's two fifty five or two fifty a K. What that's doing to your joints, you can you can only do that for so many kilometers a week. Um, and basically, you know, some athletes can sort of sustain it, but then they'll probably won't have as much overall volume within the week. But like even like for the average runner, when you've got a life behind it, you know, your whole mm. your whole goal isn't just your running. You know, you've got potentially a wife and kids, family, friends. You've got a job that you've got to get up for and stuff. You've got all these extra lifestyle stress. You've got financial stress. That all puts a load on your body, not just your training. And that's a very, very hard thing to sustain. So if you, you can do it for a little while, like you could probably prep for one marathon on Scandinavian, you might not get there. You might get injured. <laughs> but if you if you were to try That's and do it for years, injury. Yeah, um, if you were to try to do it for years, you'd probably break down. Those those stresses all tie into that. You know the injury mm. chances. I mean the, the the guys that were that made that training methodology uh, famous are the Ingebrigtsens, uh, mm. arguably some of the best middle distance runners. They're middle distance. Yes, it's well, exactly. Different That's different what I'm game. getting to. So mm. middle distance, you know, ten thousand. But even even like into the half marathon, it's it's still manageable the moment you're going marathon distance and more i think the most important thing to work on is your aerobic system because that's what you're working into uh, most yeah. of your time and it minimizes the amount of stress on your body at that same time you're still building your fitness and that's why I, why i say it's a double-edged sword in terms of you having to manage your training load along with the actual positive output that you would get from a session like that done three four times a week whereas we are doing quality two times a week sometimes three but i mean if a guy like kipchoge can't do three quality sessions a week then we have no business really getting yeah, getting to that either you know uh, i get the logic of it yeah um my biggest concern would be injuries and obviously fatigue mm. But I would just personally would love to spend more time running at the at the desired pace, just because I mean I love our track sessions, mm. and I mean Nick, those track sessions that you that you built in towards the end of comrades, those longer ones, those were absolutely deadly. So that's something that I would like to do mm. twice a week. But yeah, no, we'll we'll get into more of that. And again, it's uh, like Anne says, it's still something that is being overly researched right now. Mm. You know, there's a lot of science behind it, but there's still metrics that we're not so sure of and each and every single individual responds to that training load differently. So that's, I think, where, where science meets the art of coaching because that's when you as a as a coach, you need to understand, okay, well, I've got an athlete here that is, is really good aerobically but does not have the speed to sustain a good yeah. aerobic pace. We need to work more on the speed right now. But if someone's got natural speed, but they just don't have the aerobic base, then obviously you're trying to build more of that. So I think there isn't one method that fits everybody. And yeah. that's where you need to figure out exactly what works best for you. And I mean, if I say to you, Davey, what works best for you? I don't know right now. We're still, we're still figuring Let's it out. Let's just implement the Scandinavian <laughs> method just for one run. Cause, uh, and, and that's where I'm going to with it. It's, it's, it's a journey. You know, yeah. a lot of people that I speak to, it's like, I want to race, I want to train for comrades, I want to train mm. for two oceans, I want to do this marathon. But, I, and I say to them, okay, great. What's your longer term plan? Is running something that you want to be doing later into your years? Or do you just want to try this as a new goal and then move off of it? Because how long does it take for someone to get the most out of a consistent running training? I mean, can you get your best out of coming from just starting out running, training for a marathon in 14, 16 weeks? Is that, would you say, your best? or 
do you train consistently towards something for two, three years? Then would you say you're at your best? Or can you go later, nine years, 10 years of consistent training? I mean, we, we heard from Jenna in the last podcast how she's really hitting peak now in her training and in her, in her running career, but she's been running for so many years. Mm. I mean, what's the right answer there? If you had to have a newbie runner wanting to get the most out of their training and become the best that their body can possibly get them to be, how long does it take to get to that? Yeah, well, I'd say you, you probably find like 90% of, of your sort of potential gains will be over those first sort of like two to three years. So, so once you've got past that like two, three year mark, you've got nine, you've done 90, 95% of what your body can kind of get to. But then there's that, you know, it's called like sort of the principle of diminishing returns. The better you get at something and almost anything in life, the harder it is to get better. And so when you've got those final sort of like five, 10%, because you know, like someone like Jenna, she's an elite athlete. Um, and so for her, a very small improvement is quite yeah. a big margin in terms of, a, of her overall performance. So even though she's hitting like her best ever now, like the actual percentage increase from where she was sort of like five, 10 years ago, maybe probably won't be that big. It's, it's all within sort of those first sort of two, three years. Um, I mean, like running, you know, is a very, very genetic thing sort of how good you can get overall. And I, I, I personally believe most human beings can get pretty good at it because I mean, it's kind of like what we've been built to sort of do. Yeah, we were made to run. We were made to run. Um, so I think everyone's got massive room for improvement, but um, you know, that's why it's always, you know, sometimes you've got to sort of put, draw that line between what happens with the elites and what happens with everyone else. You know, I think, I think if you're wanting to do very well at your running and you're just an amateur, very passionate runner, you know, you've got to see it as a long-term journey and and know that sort of in those first two to three years, you're going to have a lot of these sort of wonderful gains. You're going to keep improving rapidly if you stick to the plan, if you trust your coaches, if you trust your process, but then you've got to keep sticking to it after that point and it, the improvements are going to kind of slow down then, but you can still get a little bit better, probably up until your early, mid-30s, some people even a bit later. I think with that in mind, also the first couple of years, they almost call them like your service years of running because those are the years where if you do have biomechanical issues, problem with your kinetic chain, weaknesses yeah. where you pick up niggles, those are the years where you're likely to pick them up. And because you're early enough in your career, it's okay to sort of take a little step back in order to take a leap forward. And that's what I often tell people yeah. because it's it's often so goal orientated mm. that you know i need to get to this goal like i've got this niggle but i'm going to run through it right now because i need to get to this marathon in three weeks time and it's always the argument of okay but what's going to happen after the marathon you know you need to understand that there will be repercussions if you don't let this injury rest up or if you don't listen to your body because those are just little warning signs that your body's giving you and if you don't sort them out then you're going to probably cut your running career short or prevent mm. yourself from getting to that that true running potential that each and every individual has. But it, it, it is a tricky one because obviously as, as human beings, we are goal-orientated mm. and uh, not, nothing gets us going more than, more than a goal. Hey, a baby. PB, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful feeling. PB, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think there's nothing, there's nothing more addictive that when it's something's very measurable that you can improve. So that's one of yeah. the nicest things yeah. about running is that you know for sure if you run a regular route and you just suddenly one day comfortably sort of beat your best time on that route, you look at your Strava, you think like, damn, that's good. And that's one way to, to measure improvement. Mm. What other ways can, can regular runners measure improvements? Um, basically, say you, you know, most runners have their, their favorite routes. If you're on a route and you think like, man, this is feeling easy today, you've probably improved a little bit, you know, like this is the easiest this run's ever felt. 
Uh, another way is if you are tracking your heart rate um, and you have some consistent runs, it's always got to be something where you, you've got a reference point to it to be able to see if I've improved. Um, and your heart rate's at a sort of lower heart rate on the same run, but you're going at the same speed, you know? If you're going slower and your heart rate's slow, you're not going to be able to tell much. But if you run a 5K and five minutes a K and then, you know, three weeks from then you run that same 5K and five minutes a K, but your heart rate's dropped by 15 beats, you've, you've had a massive jump in fitness basically. And yeah, I'd probably say those are like your your main ones. Like literally, have you run it faster? Yeah. Um, is it is it easier? Like just how it feels? How it feels? Yeah. That's a big one. And then heart rate, because sometimes like your heart rate might not have changed that much. You know, that's not where the adaptation's taken place. You know, in your fitness, but you've gotten better. You become a better runner, and it feels easier, and that's a good thing. And also, I often it's more for me how I feel directly after that run. So that's true. Yeah. Do I finish that run and and feel like? I haven't even gone for a run or do I feel that run yeah. and my heart rate is taking a while to come down. Like I had this this week, I, I went for my first runs after Comrades and yes, during the run, my heart rate was about t 10 beats per minute higher throughout the run mm -hmm. at a given pace that I know it wasn't a route that I usually do. But that wasn't the main thing. Yes, I only managed half an hour before being cutful for it. But I got home and my heart rate after like 10 minutes was still sitting in the hundreds, which yeah. is highly unusual for me. You know, I go for a run. I finished that the run. My body was panicking. Bit, bit yeah. fatigued. Yeah, it was, it was a strange thing. So I think, you know, that's one way to also tell is 100%. how does your body react directly after the run? Are you getting in the shower, getting out the shower and still sweating? Like, or yeah. are you quite comfortable the moment you stop it's like you haven't even run well one I, one i then also left off the list is actually you know the days after the run like how long is it taking you to recover before your next run are you now able to add more sessions in in a week mm. comfortably without feeling like you're breaking down <laughs> i feel like i had to you do know? a double run right now davy <laughs> quit no i think that's where also with comrades training it was like we were training so much and you're just running so much that i i didn't i couldn't tell how my body felt besides from just like shit because yeah. <laughs> it was like you wake up and you just be so sore all the time so you couldn't tell if you were recovering or getting yeah. worse or getting better it was just like constantly really painful but i mean you're talking about a, a very specific time within that comrades training where yeah, it peak, was yeah, like yeah. the peak training and i mean that's even we, barry says you know that that's just how you sh you do feel at that time of it if you are doing a lot of training we call that um, functional overreaching so that's where it's you specifically taking your body sort of to that threshold to that red line putting it under a lot of stress yeah. a lot of duress but then you need to back off for a little bit, which is why you guys did that lovely sort of deload leading into the, you know, the two, three weeks leading into yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. So, so, so I want to ask then, is a taper important? Um, oh, that's a good question. Because we've, heard, we've had we, uh, mixed we, reviews. We've heard mixed reviews. I believe a taper is important. I, I'm, on the, I'm on the edge. There's mixed reviews everywhere. No matter where you look, if you look in, if you look at research, not that I, not that I've actually read up probably enough research to speak on the research side of things. I just know that there's mixed reviews. If you speak to elite coaches, if you speak to casual coaches, you speak to elite runners, casual runners. We, I think it, we've spoken to elite runners who basically say it's rubbish. Some of them, some of them, some for some of them it's rubbish. Some of them need a bit of a taper. I think. What people forget is that a taper might look very different to what some people imagine it. And it's going to differ depending on sort of the level of runner you're at. If you, if you are sort of a more amateur runner um, and you, you require a taper, you're probably going to drop both your sort of volume and intensity of your training. So volume is how much total work you do, kilometers. Intensity is how fast you're running. So when you do your quality sessions, maybe you're going to drop how fast you're actually doing those sessions. Elite runners, if they do do a taper... Um, the ones that do it, they often drop the volume quite a bit, but they keep the intensity high or some of them even ramp it up. 
So that's where, like, you know, the famous Kipchoge what, 15 times 1K session that he ran before he did the sub two hours where he, like, was smashing everyone on, like, 240, 238, <laughs> 237, okay. And how long before the marathon was there? It was, like, a week or two before. Um, but he didn't actually do nearly as much volume leading into that. Yeah. And that's a lot of it's based on experience with an athlete. And that's where it's important for like a coach to know an athlete. Was, so, I mean, we were doing that type of stuff. We decreased the volume. Mm. There's no doubt we decreased the volume. But even the week of comrades, we were still doing some quality work. Yep. And uh, I, I believe that there is, like you said, depending on the level of the athlete, they can sustain that. You're obviously trying to, to outweigh that with the injury chances mm. of picking up an injury, running at a faster pace on the week of the marathon. Like, is it worth it? But if that athlete's been doing that all along and that's what they are good mm. at doing, then... It, I just it, missed the long runs. When I got into comrades, like when I was like 37 Ks in, I was like, oh, it's been a while since I've done a long run because what it had been like three, yeah. three weeks almost. So so that's something that like that'll, the length of your taper will vary from athlete to athlete. So some athletes might only need like a, a four to eight day taper. Some will need like a two to three week taper. Um, and I think a, a reason, you know, an argument against the taper kind of thing is that when you're training, is you, the way you, you adapt to training is you adapt very specifically to what you do. So when you're trying to run comrades, you guys were building and getting to those like 60, 70K almost like long runs where you're running at a, at a decent level, pretty close sometimes to what you, you're wanting to eventually achieve in comrades. And you're teaching your body how to do what it needs to do then. And the argument is then, you know, if you maybe take too long of a taper, you're you now aren't teaching your body to do that anymore. Yeah. And then suddenly it's actually what we call a really big spike in training load when you finally get to that main event. So like in team sports, we often don't do such a big taper sort of like leading into the start of the season. We might have a slightly easier week leading into the first match, but coaches often want to kind of keep it there so that they know that their athletes are always physically prepped to sort of that level, but it'll d differ depending on environments. So one thing that I've always experienced with tapering, which I'm sure is a real thing, is like tapering blues or tapering ta ta flu. taper flu. Mm, taper flu. <laughs> and my theory, which it makes sense to me, I've never actually checked it, but you run... 160 k's a week yep. your body releases endorphins for all of that and then you go start tapering and your body's not getting as many endorphins and it's quite literally a come down does, does that make sense yeah i mean that could be one reason like 100 percent. i mean also just if you think about it you've developed this really big routine like you know you've been almost religious about about your routine and now you've gone and changed that and so that's a big lifestyle change if you think about any lifestyle change anytime something big happens you move house how stressful is moving house you know they say it's the most one of the most stressful things that you can exactly. actually do exactly so it's anytime so now you, you you've you've for months been building up to this thing your body's been getting accustomed to this your mind's been getting accustomed to it i wake up at 4 a.m this is my routine i go i do this i run for this long this is how i get into work afterwards and stuff you've now gone and changed that routine and so you know depending on who you are as a person like yeah you could you could you could take a knock there if you're i, kind I of always off. get sick i somehow always yeah. get sick and i get i get so depressed mm. And I, th what makes sense to me is, like I say, like it's endorphins because yeah. run is high, and now you're just a huge cut because you go from 160 <laughs> to like 50. Yeah, and it I, just I've, makes. I've never seen Davy suffer more the day before comrades. I've never seen anybody suffer more for that for that sake. Tell them about the kettle. <laughs> Davy put it, set a kettle on fire. He didn't even know he took he took an electric kettle that was clearly an electric kettle <laughs> because it's sitting on its electric little uh, holster. He pulls it up and fills it with water and then puts it on the the gas stove. 
and he sets it a lot. <laughs> now we go back to watching the Boca and all of a sudden we start to smell that there's plastic burning in this house. And we're like, what's going on? And we look across into kettle's the kitchen, fire. the kettle's on fire. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, who put the kettle on? And David shortly just, after that, I had to be put in the room, um, close the, all the curtains. It was windy. The, uh, yeah, his, fi- his fiance cradled. And White noise had to be put on, yeah. lavender room spray, uh, candles lit. You haven't tried the pink noise. Mask. He had brown noise. noise. He had brown the brown noise. noise. Sorry. And, and, and he had to be cradled to sleep. And he still didn't recover from that that point. Yeah. So, yeah, taper, the taper flu definitely got Davey before comrades. It had him <laughs> bad. But I think there's that's, like you said, it's not being used to that environment, first yeah. of all. And it's just for Davey also it was, I'm going to go into those comrades not thinking too much about what I need to do because otherwise I'm going to overthink it. I'm going to get stressed. Yeah. But then the day comes to you and you know, you have to think you're forced to think about it. You're having to think, yeah. what am I going to do? And if you have, if you don't have that plan in your head, along with a whole bunch of other things, it can just derail you completely. Yeah. I think then always like, you know, focusing on processes more than thinking about the big goal. I'm just, just, this is more just not, from what I've seen with athletes, too much. not changing too much, just, you know, you've got your routine down. You've been on so many long runs. You know the plan. You This is what I do in the morning before a long run. You want to try to keep that as like consistent as possible. But that's it. You know, we learn from that. And that probably means that next time, Davey's not going to have that type of taper again. It's uh, It clearly doesn't work for the guy. So yeah. You might only need like three to four days before just where you, no, no, but you don't sort get, of have a don't easier get me wrong, you Enjoy the sleeping. Yeah, yeah, 100%. When we, when we were, I, the only thing that was keeping me together during my comrades training was the thought of a taper. Yeah, I got to the final week and I was in pieces. Hey, I remember that. I was absolutely broken. I was like, we finally got to taper. And then it wasn't just taper. It was like a gradual taper. And I really, I needed the break. You might have non-functional overreached as well. That's something that you've got to consider too. It might not just have been the taper. It might have been that in those 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 final like three, like 160K weeks that I you did. I overreached. Like maybe you just... <laughs> like took it too far because if you if you overreach properly if you like sort of non-functional overreach you start getting into that sort of proper overtraining syndrome burnout kind of zone yeah it, it can that take it. it it can take you know anywhere from like two to three months to even a year if you if you get a year i'm glad we're on this topic because how yeah. does an athlete know if they're overtrained and yeah. what can they do to to either first assess if they're overtrained and yeah. second of all if they are overtrained what what is the immediate thing that they need to do and what are the long-term complications hey nick did you know that it's a cool idea to eat a nutritious diet packed with loads of fiber oh yeah yeah, you should Google it using Cool Ideas Fiber Internet Solutions. I hear they've been voted number one internet service provider for customer service. Yeah, and you'll get hold of them faster than the fiber can work through your system. Yeah, so this is so we'll touch back on like when you asked me that first question because I, d- I didn't get to sort of elaborate enough. You, you need to sort of get an idea of how do I normally feel. So that's why when I said you, you take that, you know, each morning you write on a piece of paper, what's that number out of 10, how I feel, right? Some people, it's almost always going to be a six. And that's fine. It's fine if it's a six, if that's what you always feel like out of 10 in the morning. I, mean, I would Some people, to live my life feeling like a six. So was, yeah, I, I, personally, I normally feel it an eight or nine, right? But then say you are sort of like training really hard and that six drops to a three or four, then, you know, like I'm starting to push quite hard. I'm, I'm fatiguing a bit. I need to recover. But what if you just have if one it day? Keeps, yeah, one day, is, it's fine. So it's, like two, three days in a row and you're feeling like a three, then, yeah. it, then it's concerning. And if you normally like a six, so there are apps that you can download now where you can track all sorts of things where they will track it over time and they'll graph it out from you and then you'll be able to see on the line from your graph. 
like if you I know the app I'll give it to you thank you um, shout out to Marco Altini oh, you can, uh, you can yeah give you can give, give, a, give, a give our listeners <laughs> a recommendation please yeah well we'll get into that first but basically you know you want you want to get some general idea of, of how you're feeling in the long term you want to be aware of how do I feel with my training and then you'll know then if you if you're recording it and you're thinking like I normally feel like this but I'm starting to take a dip something's going wrong then Real key indicators, if you're starting to not really overreach, are you getting lots of niggles? Say, so say like, it's you know, you get niggles in running. Running's like the most injury prone sport in the world. It's a tough thing to do. But if you are, you know, you've just finished one niggle and then before maybe you've even sort of got that niggle back on track, you've got another niggle. And then while you're dealing with that niggle, you get sick. That's another one. You get sick, you get the flu. Um, you just start coming, recovering from that flu. You get tonsillitis. You know, your training is getting sort of all out of whack now because you're getting away, but you're still trying to push hard because you're trying to keep to your training plan. You know, that's another indicator that you're overtraining. And then one for me, that's like a really big indicator if you're now super starting to overtrain is you're getting sick, you're getting injured, but you're also starting to lose a bit of passion for the sport. So <laughs> say you've been someone and you really enjoy it. And like you, so you love running. We I all know. hated running. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you were hating running, if you dreading going out in the mornings, you know, it's, it's okay sometimes. Everyone feels like this is a hard day to I would have had like run. a few twos on that app or like a couple ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, but I mean like, you know, it's, it's fine to feel like we, we, you know, everyone has a life. Um, the other factors at play, some days you're just not going to feel like training, but if you consistently for like two to three weeks, every single day you're just like I don't actually want to do this run and it's something you have enjoyed you know if you've got into running and you're like I'm just trying to do this to get a bit fit and and like I'm not really into the scene just yet you can't judge it but if you're a passionate runner if you're passionate about something and that's anything in life if you've been passionate about your job and stuff and then suddenly you you're feeling like oh, I don't really want to go into work today and it's been that feeling for a while you're probably under too much strain in some form or other and you need to take a step back and do some things to sort of get a bit recovered. Love that. I mean, I just want to say, Davey, it was probably a little bit of self-inflicted, uh, non-functional overreaching. Because I mean, don't you dare! <laughs> yeah. I just look at your schedule, and yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on days where you had running rest days, yeah, you're busy yeah, trying yeah, to run yeah, sub yeah. sub twenty minute five yeah. k's yep. for no Scandinavian reason. training. <laughs> Yeah, no, I Sol mean... Self-medication. <laughs> that'll do it. That's the kind of thing that, uh, you know... You Leo, know. is that what you were showing him? Sh pull up the pull up the, the graphs. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's none of that. But, I mean, it's good to get onto this conversation because uh, I think where Ant is leading us is the need for heart rate variability yeah, that's in, one thing you in monitoring um, your, your stresses as well as your recovery. Yeah, so... so can you, can you get a little bit into it? What is heart rate variability? Yeah. So I think you use, you use the word need. I think that's a strong word. But um, so heart rate variability, it's, it's something that has a lot of potential at the moment to help with training in any sense. What it is, is it's the amount of variation in your beat to beat time and your heart rate. So say I have, let's just random number, 10 seconds in between one heartbeat and another heartbeat, right? And then my next heartbeat, there's 13 seconds in between. And then there's four seconds and then there's eight, whatever goes on and on and on. That's a high level of variability. It's changing from beat to beat, right? So if you're feeling good and you're in a non-stressed state, that variability is going to be high. And I won't get too much into the science because it's all about how your central nervous system controls your heart rates and stuff. But basically, if you have high variability, there's a lot of variation beat to beat in your heart rate. It means you're feeling nice and relaxed. Your heart doesn't think, oof, I need to get some blood pumping around this body. It's, it's probably not the correct way to say it, but oh. ima imagine it works like that. They are um, understanding this. You're getting well, this. Well, I know, I get it, but you get it. how okay, do that's I monitor it? So we'll get into that. So Hand over my heart, I'm trying to count. 
no, that's Two not going to work. Three seconds. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but basically before we get to that, so if you, if you have a high heart rate variability, there's lots of variation, you're not feeling very stressed. And that's any kind of stress, hey, that's like, we're talking about sickness, we're talking about you've just had a shouting match with your partner, you, you maybe have had lack to pick, sleep. lack of sleep, you've, you've had to pick the oh, kids up from school, they've been nutrition. sent home. Lack Poor nutrition, sleep. alcohol's probably the biggest one. Alcohol, those gin and tonics um, on the plane. The worst one. So all that kind of stress. If you start feeling, if you are under that stress, we call it physiological stress. So that's like within your physiological system, your body, that heart rate variability is going to decrease and it's going to become a lot more rhythmic. Your heartbeats become a lot more rhythmic um, and that variation is going to be less and less. And the actual variation we're talking about is milliseconds. So it's like milliseconds in between sort of each thing, right? Without getting too much into it. The way to measure it is, I mean, most people have a smartwatch. Those are actually measuring your heart rate variability constant. So if you, like I have a Garmin 4 and a 245, it's a nice little watch here. <laughs> Shout out to Garmin. Shout out to Garmin. Uh, I don't know if they'll like me in a sec, but they've got that stress measure over there. So my stress says it's 54, right? How does it know what my stress is right now? 54 what it, out of 100. Yeah, out of 100. It's basically measuring my, my heart rate variability and sort of taking that into account and what it's regu measured regularly on me. The thing is, is that most things that measure heart rate variability are not very accurate um and um i won't get into the ones that aren't very accurate but i will tell you the ones that are definitely very accurate so uh ones that are good apparently an apple watch is actually pretty good at measuring heart rate variability it's one of the most accurate watches funny enough not great for running not great for running but for heart rate variability pretty useful aura rings if anyone's ever heard of that the aura ring so they they measure it overnight when you sleep that yeah, one's yeah. also very accurate put it on your finger you put it on your finger um, and you keep it on there. Not very useful if you're like going to the gym and lifting, you're that kind of person. You, you won't be able to use it then. Buy an aura ring. Just Google it now. I think it's O-U-R-A, if I've spelled it correctly. And then this, this other one, is there's actually some phone apps that you can actually do it with. And the one that I recommend is called Heart Rate Variability for Training. Um, and it's done by an Italian guy called Marco Altini. And he's a very, very good, he's a sports scientist, physiologist, and computer scientist. And so he's basically developed an app that uses the camera on your phone and the light on your phone to measure your heart rate variability within range of sort of what an EKG can do. So when you go to hospital and they actually link up you know, all these little patches around your heart and they get it, he's, he's sort of validated it against that. And he's built a whole app around it that can monitor that over time. You have to pay a fee, obviously, for What's that kind that of work. Board? Heart rate variability for training. HRV for training. It's getting a big shout out there. Um, is it free? No, you got to pay for it. It starts off, you, you can go on it for free, but you're not going to be able to tell as much. Um, if you want to get the maximum benefit, you sort of need to pay. It'll be about probably, I think it's somewhere between 800 to 1,000 rand for a year. HRV um, for training. Yeah, it's pretty good. The thing I will say about heart rate variability though, and why I'll, I'll say it's, it's a nice to have, not a need to have kind of thing though, is it can be very useful. If, you are, if you're someone that loves numbers, you love tracking your progress, you love monitoring, and you live a pretty regular routine lifestyle, it's really, really good. It's a good thing to do. If you're someone that doesn't live a routine lifestyle, even if you love numbers and you love tracking and you're going to be religious with measuring it every day, it's not going to be great. If, say if you, if you like having a few beers on the weekend and maybe you have a drink a couple of times a week, if you put yourself under unusual stresses or you change up your routine, that's going to have a bigger impact on your heart rate variability than your training is going to have. So I wouldn't recommend it to anyone like that. But if you are, you know, you, know, you, you only ever occasionally drink or maybe you have like one drink, two drinks on a weekend, you have a very regular sort of like job sleep routine you aren't traveling a lot because travel is another form of stress so if you like having to fly up to a different place you know for work multiple times a week not so good but you've got a routine regular life and you can measure it every single day at the same time of day preferably when you wake up 
that'll be the best. Um, not preferably. Do ideally. It when you ideally, when yeah. you wake up, then it's going to be something very useful for you. But it is just a, it's it's just an extra extra uh, tool, extra tool in the whole toolkit of a sports scientist. Something or something to confuse you even more. Well. It, yeah it, it, <laughs> it helps to have a coach for that <laughs> and i mean apps like training peaks now integrate your heart rate variability from directly the app that that ant is talking about yeah, so that, up. there are ways for you know an individual to be able to take all of that information and make the best guarded sort of um, what do you call it prescriptions from yeah. that you know as a, as a coach you can directly change that athlete's uh, training schedule to make sure that something like their heart rate variability peaks four times where there are events. And yeah, so there's there's actual training training strategies now going around training with heart rate variability and stuff. Something that does also need to be mentioned. So I said you have to measure it every day. Um, what they like to do is preferably have at least two months worth of data on you before you can make any decisions based on your heart rate variability. Uh, because it takes a while for like all the computer algorithms within the apps to sort of learn you and your body and what your heart rate variability normally is. So then it'll be able to tell sort of whether you're out of range or within range or you're improving or not getting better. Um, but that is a kind of sort of way of training where that some people are moving towards where they aren't going sort of, you know, your classic periodization model where you, you're building, 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 building for a while and you think, oh, now it's time for a deload and I deload a little bit, then you build, 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 build for a while. This style of training goes off of sort of like how physio- physiologically, what are your responses? What are, what are your actual, it also doesn't just take in like, you know, what your heart rate variability is. You fill in a bunch of questionnaires so that how am I feeling out of 10? You fill that in on it as well. It asks you all kinds of other things. Are you injured? Are you sick? And these are questions. So I don't actually use this app in my work. Uh, I do sort of my own stuff. I have to work through things um, with the England Institute of Sport and they have things that they've set out for the team that I work with. Um, but it essentially ends up being very similar things and similar principles. So I just over time sort of like monitor how my athletes are feeling and I know the range for each athlete that that should normally be feeling in. And, um, you know, I have a nice little dashboard for them every day and it comes up with green smiley face if the athlete's feeling good. Uh, yellow face if they're feeling kind of average and then a red face if I sort of really need to check in with them. A mood board. Yeah, it's like a mood board. Uh, I think Davey, thinking back I need a mood board. Davey looked physically yellow for like the last two months <laughs> of comrades training. <laughs> so looking he didn't back. tell me that. <laughs> no, I'm joking, bro. But I think, you know, it's important <laughs> what you're saying that the coach has a direct line to how that athlete yeah. is feeling from the other perspective it's also important that the athlete is completely clear into how they're feeling yeah. with that coach so it's it's, it's a two-way communication that's what makes that relationship breaks a coach mm. a coach athlete relationship is it not yeah no that you you see that's where it comes down to you got to have trust between both your coach and your athletes and that's something that can be easy to build sometimes it's very natural sometimes it takes time and you've got to work together to do it and I think that's one of the trickiest things with athletes is actually when you ask them, because one of the most powerful things you don't, you know, like you, you don't always need to monitor your heart rate or your heart rate variability or some kind of other fancy measure, you know, um, of fatigue, like, you know, using counter movement jumps or like a peak power each week. Mm. Um, that's what we do sometimes. A pretty powerful tool is just asking people how they feel, but it's only accurate if they if you're honest yeah if you're honest and you you do do it regularly and you 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 like really sort of keep track with it and i mean a device simple device like garmin does that now as well directly after your runs so So that's i mean so many people are like it's always a high feeling and then it's like 
You you never want to be like oh terrible. Yeah. So you always go like oh no, it's okay. The argument there yeah. is also like in an interval session, perhaps during the one minute interval that was a ten out of ten. Yeah. But then during overall, your rest, it's like a yeah. two out of ten. So what is your overall? Is it a, a five well, out of ten? So so what we're talking about there's something a little bit different. Is, is that's actually what I would term a measure of load. So how much work you're doing? We talk about RPE there, sort of your rates of perceived exertion. And that's a fantastic question because we do have a way to get around that. And the most valid way to actually take your RPE and where sort of your watches get it wrong because it's very hard to get a watch to do this is that when you finish your session and you you know you click save your session it says oh how was that session out of ten and it has the bunch of smiley faces, <laughs> which is perfect. Weak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very strong. <laughs> Always very strong. <laughs> yes. So it's perfect, but you you should actually wait normally at least half an hour after your session within within an hour, but half an hour after your session's best because if you immediately take it after the session, your perception's been changed because if if you've had like a hard session, you know it's it's actually affected the way you're thinking right then and there. Um, endorphins maybe a bit of lack of oxygen you've been you've been pushing in that lactate threshold that lactate you know you've been filled with lactate you're in quite a bit of pain immediately afterwards but davy can't wait to press that button because then that elapsed time just becomes too long and then there's there's strava then he doesn't get to post it as well bro strava following starts to question whether he's actually a legit runner or not and you know you've got to get ahead of your watch so your watch can't know when you're feeling weak so, but what Otherwise you, the watch wins. No, 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 it's <laughs> fine. What you can do is you can actually put it in there and you can go on your Strava afterwards and you can edit your session. Okay. So if you so want to be committed. Top tip. So top th- tip. So 30 minutes later, whilst you're busy drinking your recovery shake, right? Yeah. Yeah, recovery if, if you're into <laughs> that. Yeah. What, 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 can, what can an athlete do to, to help themselves recover better? Because I yeah. want to get more into the recovery yeah. side of things just quickly. Um, Davey's putting his hand up like he's at school. Please talk to go, me about, go ahead. Talk to, me about, talk to me about sleep. Yeah, so excellent stuff. Thank so, you very much. So and more specifically, nighttime routines. Oh, we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. So, so first I'll say um, if we're talking about recovery, there are three things that are considered essentials. And then sort of the rest of the stuff. So those are Ant's top three tips. These are, well, not top three tips. These are, my, these are my top three things that if you're wanting to take your recovery seriously, you should focus on these before you focus on anything else. Um, and that is, you mentioned it, sleep is yes. one. How many hours? We'll get into okay. that in a sec. Second is uh, your nutrition. So when I mean nutrition, you know, I'm not, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a dietitian, but eating enough, fueling enough for your training. A lot of people, you know, maybe for your, your, your very amateur regular runner, you know, someone just going for a casual, they're trying to do their first half marathon or they're doing a casual half marathon, they probably are eating enough. But when you guys are like prepping for comrades at a serious level, you're prepping for a real tough time in a marathon. I think a lot of people underfuel, especially around training. So that fueling. Especially because there's like misconception of, you know, you want to try to lose weight as much as you yeah. can, drop that weight yeah. down. So like you're trying to balance that all out, yeah. but you need, you need fuel to, yeah. to push. I think if you aren't an elite runner, you should probably rather just focus on getting <laughs> enough fuel and like you probably will end up dropping enough weight anyway. And then thirdly, um, my third essential is don't do too much. Don't train too much. Sometimes actually just rest. But yeah, <laughs> so uh, sleep first because sleep's probably Dave, one Dave of the most- shaking his head in disappointment. That's, that's so broad. That's like- I understand sleep. I understand um, eating nutrition. Enough. Yeah, I don't understand. Don't do too much. That is that's one of the hardest ones to get right. So that's where you it, it helps most to have a coach and someone that you have a good working relationship with. You've got that trust relationship that they they know you. They know when they need to pull you back. Especially if you like that A type, go get it, chase it personality because it's very hard to do that for yourself. Okay. Um, but yeah, sleep. So sleep, oh, crucial. So at least eight hours a night if you're training quite hard. And um, if you're not getting eight hours? If you're not getting eight hours, you know, 
Can you nap? It's you can nap. So napping yeah, strategies. Does, does that count? Does that count? So they're different napping strategies. But we'll we'll first start that off as it's not the end of the world if you aren't getting eight hours of sleep, um, and especially if you're accustomed to it. So I work in semi-professional sport. A lot of my athletes are working jobs, and then they're training in the evenings. They are not getting eight hours of sleep. But if they keep their sleep routine, that's probably more important. You want to keep that sleep routine. So if you are used to getting six hours a night, you want to always get those six hours a night. Great if you can get to eight and you can keep it at eight. But don't stress too much if you can't do it. Rather focus on making that sleep really good quality. So you mentioned sleep hygiene. Nighttime routine. Nighttime routine. <laughs> Crucial, sleep my bro. Sleep hygiene. I, one thing that really sticks with me is thinking of that nighttime routine or sleep yeah. as the start of your next day rather yeah. than the end of your current day. Because, you know, if it, if you see it as the end of your current day, you might want to just extend that day. You might want to just get some TV time or some Netflix time. Yeah. But if you see it as the start of your next day and you realize how if you have a good night's sleep, my day is going to be a good day. Yeah, you uh, kick-started it. That's the way to look at it. I think it's how you conceptualize it. Yeah, so, I mean... First thing, so yeah, solid routine is crucial. You mentioned things about, oh, maybe I want to watch something. It's not the end of the world if your routine is you like to watch things in the evening. The one sad thing I'd say for sleep hygiene is keep that out of the bedroom. You don't want a TV in the bedroom. TV in the bedroom is a terrible thing for your sleep hygiene, your, your quality of your sleep. Because what, what you're doing is you lying in bed and you're watching TV and uh, you aren't going to sleep. So your body's like, oh, it's not time to go to sleep in bed. You know how people are always like, oh, I've been so tired that I get into bed and then suddenly I'm wide awake. It's probably because you aren't normally sleeping in bed. You are going on your phone, you're watching TV, you Netflix and chilling. So, sc so scrolling through TikTok. Um, Terrible. Okay. Terrible. Straight. That's part of my nighttime routine. So. <laughs> you can do it. So I would advise like you can scroll through TikTok as much as you want and up until before the hour you want to go to bed. Um, <laughs> it's 10 minutes before I go to bed, yeah, man. Bro. I'll sleep like a... You sleep. Well, if you can sleep like a, a rock after that anyway, then, you know, that's fine. But what I have heard is you may feel like you're sleeping very well, but when you actually talk about the, the quality yeah. of your sleep and, and how yeah. much deep sleep you're getting, like it's things like drinking coffee after 12 yeah. and all of that, that and the half-life that coffee has in your body and it's all yeah. affecting that quality of sleep. So even though I might feel like I'm out, you know, I might only be getting one or two hours of deep sleep compared yeah. to, well, I don't know how many you actually need, but yeah, that is something that I, that I am aware of. Phones yeah, are terrible. Definitely, I mean... It may be affecting it, and it normally is. That's you know, if you want to get really pedantic about it, you can you can do all the right things. But if you feel like I'm getting a good night's sleep, you know, maybe if we put an actigraph on you and we measured you, you theoretically aren't getting enough deep sleep. But if you're feeling like that's good for me, and I feel really good, and you hit the ground running every single day, you wake up feeling like sort of energized and refreshed and good to go. Then I wouldn't stress too much about it. It's only if you like really like. You know, day in, day out, you're like tired throughout the day, you're waking up, you, you definitely know your sleep routine isn't consistent. If you're going to bed at like different times every night, you're waking up different times every morning, you're exhausted, that's when you really need to sort of put yeah, effort in to sure. sort of change it up a bit. Tell me napping strategies. Napping. What are these napping strategies? You can nap during the day. Yeah. If you Our executive if producer where? does it. Yeah. It works. Look at her. Look at her skin. Yeah. If, if She's glowing. <laughs> Okay, talk about napping strategies. So, <laughs> so napping strategies. So, so I'd say the power nap is a power tool. Uh, um, uh, don't underestimate the power of the power nap. But what, what is a power nap? That's a great question because Thank you. people think when they say power nap, they're like, because you get told, you know, lots of people have heard it. Twenty minutes. Twenty minutes is all you need. And there's a lot of truth to that statement. Twenty minutes is all you need. What do you do in those twenty minutes? Actually sleep. So you sleep. don't. You don't. You can if you are good at getting to sleep. 
But the misconception that people have is you don't actually need to fall asleep in that 20 minutes. Oh, really? So what you need to do is find a nice quiet place, hey. cool, dark, lie still, preferably not, you know, on your desk or something at work. That's not going to be good, <laughs> most likely. candles, spray no, some. I have that. Yeah, if that spray. works for you. But I mean, you know, dark room, so maybe no candles. Um, and then just lie back and close your eyes for 20 minutes. Set your that's time what I was going to say. It's, it's hard for me to fall asleep yeah. in 20 minutes. I, and I start thinking about sleep. And then the more I think about sleep, the less I want to fall asleep. And then I might fall asleep. By the time I'm drooling, <laughs> it's been my 20-minute time has gone off. And I have only feel like I've had two, no, two minutes. So you, you, you say if you get yourself into that environment to, yeah. p- to have a sleep, it actually counts as part of those 20 minutes. Yeah, so if you if you just wow. cool, quiet, it's very calm. Worthwhile. Worthwhile. Super worthwhile. Cool, cool, calm, collected. Cool, calm, collected. And it's it's almost like a kind of meditation if you think about it because you, what you're doing is you're just literally taking a brain break in the day. Brilliant. Um, and you should, especially maybe the first couple of times, you won't feel much of a difference. But if you get consistent with it, you probably will start to notice a bit of a spark when you come out of your I took a brain break nap. today Baby, for this podcast. I, that's what I I'm took like say. a two-hour brain break because I did not sleep at all. But I had a very late night because yeah. it was my Bill's party yesterday. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Um, <laughs> I was so tired today. And so I, had, I, sleep, I was in bed for like two and a half hours and I did not sleep a wink. I was just tossing and turning. And look I at feel how shit. So I'm going to prescribe to you before every podcast, you're going to have to do a power nap. That's compulsory. Well, I'm going to set up a little sleep pod over here in our studio and Davey's going to have to do a compulsory. Yeah, now you can do that. Well, the, the, the opposite end of the I'll, scale I'll with naps is... I'll sit in that chair and turn the light off. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst he gets a foot rub. Yeah. You, you just, just got to be careful, bro, because uh, on that other end of the scale, you said you lay in bed for two hours, tossing and turning. I mean, even if you fall asleep for two hours, so if you extend that nap past 20 minutes, there's a little bit of a danger zone. And that it, it might overall be better yeah. for your health to get that sleep in, and it can have some definite benefits in like sort of overall recuperation. But if you're wanting to feel nice and sort of zesty when you wake up, you know, you got to get through a full sleep cycle because, you know, when we sleep, we go through different cycles. You mentioned deep sleep earlier, your REM sleep, like when you're dreaming and stuff. That on average normally takes about 90 minutes. So say you fall asleep, but then you only sleep for like 45 minutes to like an hour sometimes, or you go even way over and you go like two, two and a half hours. You know, when people are like, oh, you go to like, like it's just been such a hectic day. You have a two hour afternoon nap. Dead to the worst. Bro, that is a why I'm so you. scared of naps. 20 minute timer, David. 20 minute timer. 20 minute timer, bro. But even if you Start fall small. asleep for those 20 minutes and I wake up and I'm like, I don't know where I am. It takes practice. A bit of practice. I've seen the tip um, of having some coffee before you actually have the nap um, in the day, because you're not you're not you're not going to get your your the goal is not to get like deep sleep in 20 minutes. You can't get there. That's not going to happen. It's just some rest. Have it's some just coffee some before your nap. Yeah, it's an actual thing. And what about um, sleeping masks? Yeah, if that helps you, because it keeps it dark. You're I can highly recommend. <laughs> He's got some satin sleeping satin masks. Sleep oh, comfortable, masks. silky. <laughs> okay, and, and then yeah. Carry on. No, I want to talk about nutrition as well. Yeah, I want to. I want to talk about nutrition, but also conscious at times. So let's. Uh, we can just a quick tip with regards to nutrition in terms yeah. of. Are cocoa pops good for breakfast? <laughs> Depends. Yeah, if you're going out on a long run and you like cocoa pops and you feel it doesn't upset your stomach, yeah, go go <laughs> for it. I'm happy. <laughs> and uh, good things to be to take in after a run. So after is and 
is that after every workout or is it only yeah. your hard workouts or so timing of it in the first couple of hours or does it matter? I mean, you can get really in depth yeah, into, right. into sort of the strategies, but basically you just want to think of your general goals. When you line up at the start of a training session, you want to have enough fuel in your body. And when we talk about fuel, we normally talk about carbohydrates and enough fluid in your body to perform well enough in the session. You just want to be well hydrated and well fueled. So you want to eat enough leading into the session, but not too much that you feel uncomfortable. You know, and that's normally done over the course of the preceding day, a couple of days. After your session, what you want to do is you've now depleted some of that fuel because you've gone and exercised. You want to refuel, you want to restock. And so you want to get that glycogen back in. Maybe you've also broken down some protein, you know, some muscles and stuff. You want to get in a little bit of protein as well. And, you know, you can kickstart it. So kickstarting the, what we call the glycogen replenishment process. Um, I've, I've had dietitians tell me, and I'm not a dietitian, so, you know, don't yeah. just take my word. Disclaimer again. Disclaimer again. But like, you know, 20 to 30, like roughly 20 grams of protein and like 30 grams to 40 grams of carbohydrates within the half hour after a session. Like just more the carbs there, kickstarting and getting your carbs back into your system, especially if you're doing two a days. That's probably something pretty useful. You're referencing carbs, obviously. Yeah. So you don't believe in high fat? Um, there's a lady, Samantha Burke. Um, if anyone really is interested in actually looking what a high fat diet does for exercise performance, I recommend reading her research. Good. Um, she's got some excellent research papers and she's shown that it is not superior to a high carb diet when it comes to endurance performance, contrary to what a lot of people have you believe. Brilliant. Well, on that, we're going to start myth busting with Ant over yes. here. We've got, we got some questions. We reached out to our audience and um, I'm quite excited to get into some of these. I, I want very simple answers for these. Yeah, uh, quick. And we, quick don't have to, we don't have to get into the, the nitty gritty science of it. Yes. But I'm going to start one off and I think this is a controversy. Controversial. Controversial. I think his, his English is not so good. He recently <laughs> came to the country. I think this is a controversial one. Ice baths for recovery. Ice baths for recovery. Um, good for muscle pain. Maybe not good for long-term adaptation if you do it too much. Okay. Cryptotherapy. How effective is it? <laughs> Crypto or cryotherapy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well... We, let's talk about both. Uh, about <laughs> cryptotherapy. I mean, I haven't invested in anything, bro. I don't know about that. Baby's asking the same question without knowing it. Yeah, cryotherapy, same as an ice bath. If you enjoy it and you feel like it makes you feel better, crack on. Sorry, I'll do another one. Okay, so this is from, from Skull, from Skull09. Anti, anti-inflammatories or no anti-inflammatories? Um, speak to a doctor, probably. Speak um, to your depends, local GP. Depends on, depends on your injury. I would say if you're taking them... <laughs> If you're Hold taking on. them consistently, um, almost certainly really bad for you, bad for your joints in the long term. You wouldn't ever want to take them more than three days in a row. Hold on. Hold um, on. What? With an injury. Uh, you know, it depends on your medical condition. Okay. What about MSM? Nah, I wouldn't really stress too hard about that. I wouldn't take it. Wouldn't okay. waste my money on it. Okay. Running with shells asking, what is the difference between rest and recovery? Same thing. Same thing, no difference. Oh, come on, well, give mean, us a bit of a. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can go a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. You can go a bit more. Well, like when you're resting, you aren't you aren't putting your. Well, if we're talking about actual rest, you know, like like going to work is not rest, right? But what if you sit at your desk and work? Yeah, if you're sitting at your desk and working, it, you know, maybe you you you're not training, so you you aren't like putting the same amount of stress on you. But like you aren't getting a full rest in, you know, you're still recovering from training and stuff. But like when we, when I'm talking about rest, I'm talking about like you, you're taking some time off, you know, some rest from like, stuff. Like what we had after comrades. That yeah. Was, that was a rest. Or like a rest day. Like you, 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 it's a, say you have a Sunday free, it's your day off in the week from training and you do something fun with your family. It's something fun, something enjoyable. You eat something delicious, something you like. Rest, recovery. 
Uh, going on top of that, uh, Michelle Lithia asks, is active recovery always the best versus total rest? It depends on the athlete, um, especially depending on, on sort of your experience level. So if you are a beginner runner, you probably don't need to do active recovery because that's going to be an actual training session for you. It's going to put a training stress on your body. If you're a really good athlete, um, you know, maybe some off-feet active recovery, like on a, on a watt bike or an exercise bike or even so a like cross-training of some sort. Yeah, cross-training of some, of some sort. I would say I wouldn't consider like gym active recovery, but some easy aerobic exercise, 20 minutes, no more. That's probably going to make you feel better. If you feel it makes you, you feel better, Then cool. do it, yeah. then do it. Another one uh, that I get asked a lot about is sauna, steam mm. rooms. Uh, yeah. How, how do those act and how do those help in any way um so a lot of people just go to gym and chill in the sauna and do nothing else yeah i i, I would say doing nothing <laughs> else good. uh doing nothing else is probably not forwarding or training but if you're using it as a recovery tool um you know there's some growing research that shows it's, it, there's quite a bit of potential oh. there i would say if you feel good if you like a sauna like smash on with it like that's cool it's probably gonna it's probably gonna help you then if you feel good you, you do good you know Okay, I have two more. One was from a, a follower. Uh, massage guns, yay or nay? Do they actually work? So, I, so massage is on the list of, so I mentioned those essentials earlier. So mo almost all the things we've talked about, I, I think they're the non-essentials. They're the, if you like it, do it, is my general rule kind of thing. Massage guns, they've been shown to like, you know, any kind of massage, any kind of manual foam therapy, rolling. foam rolling, I, I class, class them all under the same thing. There's no real difference. You know, you can't shear your fascia and tear your fascia or anything like that and break it down and make you better. That's not going to happen. What is going to happen with any kind of massage, if you enjoy it, you know, if you don't enjoy it, it might not happen because the brain plays a big role here, but it's probably going to reduce your muscle soreness. If it reduces your muscle soreness, you feel good, you can train better the next day. Cool. Brilliant. Love it. And then my one is um, magnesium specifically so magnesium as a daily supplement and yep. magnesium in a bath so the thing with magnesium is uh, firstly i would definitely rather go with a daily supplement if i'm if i'm trying to get magnesium in i'm gonna absorb it way better through my gut than i am through my skin um that's how we tend to absorb nutrients better um <laughs> you're not to say like I, I i don't know enough about like how you can absorb it through your skin like disclaimer there but like i do definitely know your your gut is designed to actually do that whether you need to take it or not um would probably you, you need to go see a dietitian and get some blood work done i think once again it also comes down to that you know thing where you say mentally if, yeah. if mentally if something is helping you yeah I you love know, a magnesium I get into bath. A, into, nice. a, into a hot bath, magnesium. If that's what makes me, you know, think, oh, this is the trick, and yeah. it's going to mentally just help me feel better, then that is a huge part of recovery, right? Hundred percent. And then I remember you also told me a while back. You, you saw me. Uh, you saw me in one of my videos uh, downing a whole bunch of water. Yeah. And you said that you're wasting your time because your body's actually only going to absorb or absorb like a certain. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to down like too much at well, like you can if you if you're desperately thirsty and you need to get a drink and you you like you normally drink to thirst, you're gonna drink. But if you like prepping for like a run or something, you'll notice if you down a lot of water straight away, you're just gonna you're peeing up. you're peeing a lot. But if you drink that same amount of water spread out throughout the day, you for some reason you don't you don't pee as much, and that's just because you've given the chance to like to absorb it in your gut. So is there a correct way to drink like a 500 ml? Because I mean, a lot of people will will sit there and down it, and is that is that counterproductive? 
I wouldn't say it's counterproductive. I'd say that like you, you probably just aren't getting all of that water in your system because it's it's just a, that's going to pass through quite quickly. You know, it's and not like something you have to digest water. It's something that passes through your system. Can I tell you that's something that's played on my mind ever since you sent that message? Because now every single time I'm downing water, I'm like, I'm just going to waste this. I mean, I down water too, <laughs> but I uh, I down water too, but it's normally when I'm like really thirsty. Uh, Otherwise, yeah. I normally just casually drink it throughout the day. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, there's that the last minute advice there. Casually drink water throughout the day. Small sips. Small sips. Don't Ooh. down big glasses like Davey does. Yeah, don't try and to base your whole You might, you might get the most oh, out wait, of What it. about Coke Zero? Is, is, is Coke Zero a form <laughs> of hydration? Because whoop, whoop, whoop. if I look at you, the first ingredient chat is water. Yeah, you can definitely hydrate with I Coke Zero. I can hydrate with Coke Zero. Yeah, it's also got some caffeine in there, which has you know, got some performance benefits. So... Mist but busted. also, can it dehydrate you? <laughs> no, we don't know. Most most likely not. We're not gonna. I don't. I don't know enough on the research. But is my um my my gut instinct tells me highly unlikely. Okay, brilliant. Well, is not, it's not beer. Is Alcohol, yes, that will dehydrate you. Is aspartame and acylphalamine K bad for you? That's a topic up for debate in the nutrition thing. Most of the research shows that it's not so bad, but a paper I saw was released very recently, but it's only one paper, has shown that it might potentially be bad for your gut microbiome, but I don't know enough about that. Might. So don't go on my word. Might be. Might be. Well, Ant, it's been, a, it's been an absolutely interesting conversation with you today. I think uh, we've both learned a hell of a lot from it. I hope our listeners did too. And, and if you have enjoyed it, how can people get in touch with you? And are you on, so on socials? I am on socials. I honestly could not tell you my handle on Instagram right now. I can tell I have you. No, well, I have well, no idea. We'll have to what put it. Is. We'll have to put it. Um, no, here we go. In our description. And guys, if you have any more questions for Ant, please feel free to get in touch with him. Yeah, uh, pop him a message. He'll, he'll he'll send you a nice reply. Maybe he'll comment on your stories as well and tell you what you're doing wrong. Tell you you're drinking water on <laughs> it's, it's Ant underscore Clark ninety three. Well, yep. there we go. I also think you were downing like a liter and a half when I saw you downing oh it, which is probably why, which I probably, still, I still probably why I mentioned I was probably like, that is an excessive amount of water to have in one go. But you know what? It's I not still, like a glass. I still <laughs> ran a PB, so. Well, well. <laughs> no, he's just a super athlete, bro. <laughs> thanks, Anne. Thank you so much Thank for, you, for coming on today, bro. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's been lovely. Cool, 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 cool. Cool, 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 cool ideas. It's the best idea. And they are voted number one internet service provider for their customer service. But don't take our word for it. Try it for yourself. Visit their website www.coolideas.co.za and check coverage for your area. Do it now. We hope you enjoyed listening to another episode of Making a Runner. Make sure to leave a review and share with a running buddy. And you can also follow our journey on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to keep up to date with the latest news and episodes. Cheers for now. Bye.